0: So Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 12 tonight, and this is what God's Word says. And now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, that you have recorded the history of what took place when your son came into this world. And so, Father, I pray that you would write the truths of this passage on our hearts and that you would change our hearts, Lord, that we would love you with all, the, with all that is within us, with all of our mind, our heart, soul, and, and strength. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as you think about, uh, maybe as you, as you think about someone who is truly wise... So a wise man, you might have some images that pop into your head. And depending on where you are, whether you're from, you know, maybe the, the east or whether you're a western individual, you might have a different picture of what you might consider someone who is wise to look like. For instance, in the you know, in the East, a lot of times wisdom is actually associated with age, right? So the older you are, theoretically speaking. You you should possess more wisdom. Now that's not necessarily our picture here in the West. A lot of times we actually look at people who are older with a disdainful view. A lot of times we don't necessarily uh, look at people who are older as though they have wisdom to offer us, which I think is a, a real tragedy. Um, and that's. I think, due to some rebellious generations, uh, a couple Chris. generations in the past. <laughs> um, and uh, so as we, as we think about this idea of maybe what someone might look like here in the West, a lot of times... Um, what we might think, you know, someone who is wise will look like is someone who maybe has, has been to college and they have a lot of degrees. They've got their associates, they've got their bachelor's, their master's, and their Ph.D. And we'll look at that person as though, wow, that person must be really wise. But what the Bible teaches is that mere knowledge does not equate to wisdom, in fact, even the dictionary makes a distinction between knowledge and wisdom, saying that uh, true wisdom is the understanding of how to apply knowledge and experience. True wisdom, according to just the regular old dictionary, is is different than regular knowledge in that it is the understanding of how to apply the things that you know and life experiences to uh, ensure that you will make wise decisions, and, uh, intelligent decisions. And the Bible actually takes it a step further, and God says this. He says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, being in right relationship with God and reverencing him as God and Lord of your life is the beginning of wisdom and so in tonight 's passage we actually see this group of wise men that that come to Jerusalem, and what do we see them doing the, these these people that are considered wise? Well we see them seeking out Jesus for the express purpose of Worshipping him, they see it. We see them seeking out Jesus for the express purpose of worshiping Jesus. And so that's the main theme. That's what we're pulling out of this passage. That's what uh, that's what we're talking about tonight. Is that true wisdom is displayed in worshiping Jesus. True wisdom is displayed in worshiping Jesus. So real quick, before we jump into all of the, um, the three points that I have for us, um, we want to talk about the context here a little bit. So this story here in chapter two, uh, it kind of picks up where we left off uh, last week uh, when we read the latter part of Matthew chapter one. Uh, but there, there is some time that has elapsed between uh, the, the, the angel appearing to Joseph in the dream And the arrival of the wise men, and people. This is another one of those things where people debate. Okay, did this happen a couple months later, or did it happen a couple years later? A couple months later, a couple years later. Um, There is something uh, in a little bit later in chapter two that might indicate that it could be there could be as much as two years later. uh, Specifically, verse sixteen. in chapter 2 can lead us to believe that it could be uh, as much as two years later. So Jesus could have been a, a toddler at this point. Um, but we don't really know for sure. So it could be as little as a few months, or it could be a couple years later. Um, another thing that, uh, that really runs throughout this passage um, is, and it's kind of continuing this theme that we saw this last week of Jesus as king as God's anointed one. In fact, uh, when we see Herod's fearful response to these wise men coming in, um, we see him ask the question, he inquired of them, verse four, where the Christ was to be born. And we talked about last week how the Christ means the anointed one. And this takes us back to passages like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Genesis three fifteen, Isaiah 53, all of these promises of God about this this ruler who would come, and even in Micah, which the the um, uh, chief priests and the scribes here, which they quote <coughs> from Micah five two, uh, it it talks about this this coming ruler who would shepherd the people of God, and so there's all these promises in the Old Testament here, um, and so the the point is this is that this passage is really meant to present Jesus as the king, and especially the king who deserves to be worshipped. And there's actually a contrast here between King Jesus and King Herod. King Herod is a wicked man, as we see uh, a little bit later in the chapter. We actually see that he's so afraid of losing his power, having heard that that someone has been born king of the Jews, That he actually orders the mass execution of every male child two years and under in Bethlehem. And so this guy is so, this king, Herod, he's so insecure, so worried about losing his power, that he's willing to kill in order to keep his power. In fact, we know from history that not only did he kill all of the young infant boys in this town, from two years old and under, we actually know that he killed two of his own sons just to ensure that he would stay in power. Not only did he kill two of his own sons, he killed several of his ten wives. The guy was an absolute crazy, evil dude. Not, not important to what we're talking about here. Uh, the, point, the point is this. Shh, Evan. The point is this, is that he's a wicked, wicked man. That's, that's the point that we're talking about here. Um, and so there's this contrast here between, between King Jesus and King Herod that's also a factor uh, in, this, in this passage. And so we said that true wisdom is displayed in worshiping Jesus. And so there's three ways that this passage teaches us about worshiping Jesus. The first is this, is that the truly wise person worships Jesus by seeking Jesus. The truly wise person worships Jesus by seeking Jesus. Second, the truly wise person worships Jesus by rejoicing in Jesus. And third, the truly wise person worships Jesus by offering to Jesus. So seeking Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus, and offering to Jesus. Let's talk about that first one for a minute. Seeking Jesus. If you look at verse two there, it says this, the the wise men, they show up in Jerusalem, and it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so Matthew The writer of this gospel, from the the very beginning of this chapter, he tells us that the wise men or magi, as they're sometimes called, that they have come from the east, okay, which possibly means from Babylon. I tend to think that. Um, which also could explain why this caravan of people from Babylon would be so disturbing to the people in Jerusalem. Because if you know your Old Testament history, guess who came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the Southern Kingdom a few hundred years prior? Babylon. So to have this caravan of wise men coming into town from Babylon would be very, very concerning. And King Herod seems to have this, this uh, frightened uh, manner. And then also it says that all of Jerusalem was troubled with him as well. But not only that, we actually see that these wise men, if they came from Babylon, it's an 800-mile journey. Would have taken several months for them to get there. Yes, yes, they did have a reason. And that's what we're talking about. And what is fascinating about these, these wise men is that they come from Babylon, and people in Babylon don't worship the God of Israel. These particular magi would have been astrologers, theoretically, so they would have worshipped the stars, they would have worshipped different things in, in creation, and because they come from Babylon, they actually would have <coughs> worshipped the false god Marduk. That was the, the main uh, deity in Babylon at the time. And so this is very odd that these wise men are coming from uh, a, f- a foreign nation, uh, generally speaking, a pagan nation, not worshiping God, and they have come with the express purpose of worshiping someone who has been born king of the Jews. And so this actually, it, it makes us wonder, how did they know about this prophecy? How did they know about this king who was supposed to be born king of the Jews? Well, one of the theories that has been put out there that I actually think makes the most sense goes all the way back to the time of Daniel. Now, Daniel would have been familiar with his Old Testament, Daniel would have known all of the promises of God that uh, God had given concerning the king who would come and shepherd Israel. He would have known specifically passages like Numbers 24, 17, which says this. I see him now, okay? So someone's in in view. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near, okay? So this prophet, this person who sees this vision, he see someone who's coming in the future, okay? And then it says this. It says, a star shall come up out of Jacob or out of the land of Israel, okay? Where else did we hear about a star? In the passage that we just read, a star shall come up out of Jacob and a scepter. Now, a scepter is the sign of, of a ruler, right? It's the king. It's his stick. He's like, oh, I'm in charge. Um, and so a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. And so it is possible, and I think, I think likely that Daniel, being a faithful, faithful man who followed God, desired to uh, have a relationship with God, and desired to tell other people about God, I think he told people in Babylon about the coming Messiah, the coming king. And his faithful act of just sharing the the word of God, the promises of God, had a ripple effect down the generations to the point where these men, who would normally be pagans, are now worshipers of the one true God and have come to see Jesus. They have come seeking Jesus for the express purpose of worshiping Jesus. And so that's the, our first point, though, is that as we think about the journey of 800 miles, most of us aren't, aren't driving 800 miles to come to church and worship on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning, right? But the fact that they're willing to, to travel such a long distance to seek out Christ speaks to the heart of worship that they have for him, their desire to see him, to, to be in his presence and to worship him. I think, uh, I think of something like this, where imagine that you uh, had got a letter in the mail, and it said that, uh, Faith, you've won an all-expenses-paid trip to, uh, to Harry Potter land. You like Harry Potter? No. no. Okay. Disneyland. How's that work? Okay, cool. Uh, All expenses paid to Disneyland, okay? So you've got this letter, right? It says you, you, there's a code in the letter that says your plane ticket, your ticket to Disneyland, all these things. Uh, It's all in the letter, okay? But then let's say you set it down somewhere and then a couple days later, you can't find it. You would seek out the letter, right? You would seek out this document, why? Because you see the value of it and you would seek after it until you found it. And these wise men, in a similar way, they have heard about the glorious king that God has been promising for 4,000 years, through, all throughout the Old Testament. They've heard the promises about this one who is a ruler who will shepherd, tenderly take care of his people. And they have come to worship this one who will shepherd the people of Israel, Perhaps even these wise men read a little bit further in Micah because in that same prophecy, it talks about this one who is a ruler and a shepherd, and it says that his coming is from of old, from ancient days. Now that's important because those two phrases are only ever described to God. So this ruler, this shepherd, is also God. And so they've heard that this, this one who has been born king of the Jews, is also the creator of all things. And because he is the creator of all things, they've come to worship him. So they are seeking him so much so because they recognize that he is worthy of their worship. And so sometimes I I wonder I wonder if the heart that they have for Jesus is the heart that I have for Jesus. Is is that the heart that you have, where you are seeking Jesus? Now, we have been blessed by God. He has given us his word. And in his word, we hear the voice of Jesus. And so... The way that we seek Jesus, or one of the ways that we seek Jesus, is by seeking to find time to open his word and to hear his voice. And yet, how often do we have to set reminders on our phone or have other brothers who are faithful love having brothers that help keep you accountable or sisters that help keep you accountable, but you have to have people check in with you and say, hey, did you read your Bible yet? Instead of having this heart of worship where we are seeking Jesus, it, is, it comes from within. It's our heart. It is our desire to know him, to worship him, to spend time with him. If we are honest with ourselves, more often than not, we prioritize many other things over Jesus. Could be your hobbies, the sports that you play, the um, could be the homework that you are trying really hard to get good grades in. Could be the person you have a crush on. Right? We we prioritize many things over Jesus. In fact, we often spend more time seeking to know other people rather than seeking Jesus Himself. And so, what that reveals is that we do not have hearts that worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. And the reality is this, is that you will never have a heart of worship if you don't first have a heart that has been gripped by the grace of God. You will never worship Jesus the way that he deserves to be worshipped until you recognize how deeply loved you are by Jesus. And you will never recognize how deeply loved you are by Jesus until you recognize how deeply unlovable you are. In your sin, in your wickedness, you do not deserve the love of God. I do not deserve the love of God. And yet, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up his life to show how much he loves Samantha and wants Samantha to be a part of his family, so much so that he gave up his life. And until that reality grips each and every single one of your hearts, you will never worship Jesus the way that he deserves to be worshiped. And so you must be overwhelmed by the gospel. You must be overwhelmed by the love of God. You must be floored by it, And when that happens, when your heart is overwhelmed by the grace of God that he's poured out on you in uh, sending his one and only son to die for your sins, to the degree that that truth grips your heart, praises will rise from your heart and come off your lips. It's when the redeeming grace of God, when that reigns in your thoughts and in your heart, then you will worship Jesus the way that these wise men worship Jesus. But not only do we see them seeking Jesus, the next thing that we see is we actually see that they are rejoicing in him. Look at verse 10 there real quick, where he says this. He says, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. So real quick as we're we're walking through this. So upon entering Jerusalem, the wise men, they're greeted by the wicked king, Herod. And Herod tries to convince these wise men that he actually wants to worship Jesus too. And so he says, "Go, go find the kid. And then when you find him, Come and tell me so that I can worship him too. But what we see a little bit later on in the chapter is that he didn't actually want to worship Jesus. He didn't have a heart of worship. He had a heart of hatred. And so we see uh, the wise men once again in verse uh, in verse nine, after listening to the king, it says, they went on their way, and behold the star that they had seen when it rose. It went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So this is actually the first time in the passage where it says that the star moves, which is miraculous. I don't know if you guys ever realized that, but like uh, in the initial part of the thing, the star shows up and then it's like they get to Jerusalem and then they don't know where to go from there. So God miraculously moves this star from Jerusalem to Bethlehem until it literally rests over the place where Jesus is. He's like, right here, come, come here, come and see. And so the wise men, they start on their way once more and, and the, the star comes to rest where Jesus lived with Mary and, and Joseph. But what's striking here is it says when they see the star, they rejoiced exceedingly right, uh, it, with exceedingly great joy is how it's literally translated. But they're not rejoicing at the fact that uh, the star showed up again. The star is a means to an end. The fa- what they're rejoicing over is the fact that the star is leading them to the one that they have come to worship. So their joy is not in the star. Their joy is in Jesus. So much so that it says they, that they rejoice Exceedingly with great joy, I think about uh, actually just this last week um, so many some of you know some of you don 't know this is not the first time i 've been a youth pastor so se- several years back when i was a when I was a young man um, uh, a couple years a couple years out of high school, um, the Lord got a hold of my life and and shortly after that uh, put me into uh, Pastoral ministry as a youth, as a high school youth pastor at another church, and I'll I'll, I'll spare you guys the boring details. But through a series of circumstances, the Lord uh, led me out of that position and and, and uh, into a season of brokenheartedness of of wondering what God's plan for my life was and and thinking that. Uh, um, you know, that maybe I misheard God and I wasn't really supposed to be in ministry and, you know, all these different things. Um, and it led to a three year period of wondering what the heck I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And then in July of 2021, um, I got a call from pastor Aaron and he said, you're the guy we want you. And so I got to come here and, uh, um, this happens to me all the time when I'm here, but, um, I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> Be a man. Okay. Um, so uh, this last week, um, right before staff meeting, sometimes people leave like leftovers here and stuff. And so I'm walking up to the, uh, walking up to the, the kitchen up there, you know, and I'm walking up the steps uh, of the building over there and I see the pictures of you guys from the summer retreat and I'm walking up the steps. And I'm looking at this big, beautiful church and I'm just overwhelmed at the fact that God has brought me here. I, and I rejoiced with, with exceeding joy at God's grace and his, his plan for my life, that I get to be a part of your guys' lives. And, and I just imagine, maybe that's just like a, a little taste of the joy that these wise men feel when they recognize that they're coming to Jesus that they get to meet the Jesus, this, this, uh, this one who has been promised for so long, the God who made them and loves them and desires to have a relationship with them, they get to meet him. And so they rejoice. And so I just, I just wonder, I, I think about my own heart at times and I think about my own relationship with Jesus and I, I just, sometimes I wonder uh, or maybe not wonder, maybe sometimes I just think, you know, I should have more joy. I, I, I know the God who created all things because of Christ, what he has done for me. I should be a more joyful person. And as you think about your own life, even as we sing these, sang these Christmas songs and as you come on Sunday mornings and, and sing these worship songs, I, I just got to ask, like, what's going on in your heart? Are you just mouthing words, just repeating back uh, stuff that's on a screen? Or are the words giving expression to the emotion that's in your heart? Are the words giving expression to the joy that you feel in response to having come into a relationship with Jesus? Is your heart joyfully engaged In worship. I don't say that to shame myself or to shame you. Just as a a heart check, just ask yourself do you you feel this this joy in Christ? The fact that, that you get to have a relationship with the God who made you and loves you and sent his one and only Son to die for you. This is amazing. We should be joyful. We, of all people, should be joyful. And so this next week, as you sing worship songs and as you read your Bible and as you pray, yes, I'm assuming you're going to do all of those things this next week. As you do these things, try to eliminate the distractions that are going on in your life and focus your attention on Jesus. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus and his love for you, you will begin to rejoice in Jesus and worship him the way that these wise men worship Jesus. Lastly, we see an offering given by these wise men. If you look at verse this the latter half here, verse 11, So it says they fell down and worshiped him and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another route. And so the wise men, they arrive at the house where Jesus lives and they fall down and they worship him and part of their worship consisted in bringing gifts that would traditionally be offered to a king. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are all expensive items that were meant to express the exceeding worth of Jesus. These are expensive items that were meant to express the exceeding worth of Jesus. These were costly Items. And these wise men, they gave these items because they were intending to communicate the value of Jesus. They sacrificed, they offered as a sign of the fact that they recognize that Jesus is worthy of this type of sacrifice. He's worthy of this type of offering. Now, I'm going to share something with you that may or may not be true as far as the interpretation of these three gifts. I like to think that they are, but we don't know for sure. So gold, a lot of times, has been interpreted to reference the kingly role of Jesus. Okay? So that's, that's one, one element there. It, and then frankincense has oftentimes been interpreted to represent the priestly role of Jesus, because incense was used in part of the worship uh, in the temple, okay? So it's, it's, it's possible that this, this other gift foreshadowed the fact that Jesus is the great high priest, and the first one <coughs> represents the fact that Jesus is the great king. Now, myrrh is a very interesting gift to give to a baby, because myrrh was used in the burial process, so this possibly is foreshadowing the death of Christ, the fact that he would one day die for the sins of his people. So these are possibilities, but we can't be dogmatic on them, okay? But one thing we know for sure, all of these gifts were very expensive and were intended to uh, communicate the value that these wise men were placing upon Christ. They're saying, you are worthy of this offering. And so because we see this example in the lives of these wise men, that they're they're offering to Christ, they've responded in worship, As we think about our own life, we need to recognize that worship is necessarily costly. It costs us something because when you come to worship on a Sunday night or on a Sunday morning, you are sacrificing your time, you're sacrificing your attention, you are um, giving energy, right? Right? And the Bible actually talks about this in uh, the book of Hebrews. It says that in the the new covenant, we who are uh, a royal priesthood, we offer sacrifices, but not sacrifices that are meant to atone for sin. We offer the sacrifice of praise. This is Hebrews thirteen fifteen. And so we don't offer anything to atone for sins, but we offer up the sacrifice of praise to Jesus. So this is our uh, rightful act of worship, as Romans 12 says. So my question for us though, is this: is as we see these wise men offering these costly gifts as a sign of their worship, do we also offer our time and attention, our devotion? do we offer our very lives as a response of worship to Jesus so that we might express how glorious he is. As one song would say, he is worthy of every song that we could ever sing. And I know I said this previously, but... You won't be willing to make an offering of your time and energy and attention to Christ and worship him in that way unless you first understand his grace. Unless you first understand how much he has loved you. 1 John says this, it says, We have come to know and believe the love that God has For us. But then it goes on to say that we love because he first loved us. So your worship, your love, is a response to the love of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross. And you will never offer yourself completely to Christ until you understand that he is. Worthy of your devotion. He's worthy of your affection. So as we close, we remember what we talked about at the beginning, that we all have this picture of what it looks like to live a wise life or what, what a wise person looks like. But the Bible teaches us very clearly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if you want to, if you want to live a truly wise life, then you must worship Jesus and worship him by seeking him, by rejoicing in him, and by offering to him offering your life to him. Because worship is the response to the redeeming grace of God displayed in the cross of Christ. Michael Reeves is the author of several books, but he has this this quote from the book called Delighting in the Trinity, um, which we've been reading as a staff um, here. And he has this quote in there that's really awesome, but he says this, he's speaking about grace, he says it's really just kind of a short way, or a shorthand way, of speaking about the personal loving kindness out of which God ultimately gives us himself. So grace is not something uh, that, that God, it's not this abstract thing that God gives apart from himself, but grace is actually God giving of himself to you. So we could, say, we could end by saying this, that Jesus offered himself first to the Father on the cross to take away the wrath of God against your sins. And after having paid for your sins and for my sins, Jesus now offers himself again as the fulfillment of every longing of your heart. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to turn aside the wrath of God, to take it away. And now he offers himself to you as the fulfillment of everything that you will ever need or want. Let's pray.